Tomorrow, President Biden is making his way to Phoenix, Arizona, where a new semiconductor chip plant is being built. During the pandemic, disruption to global supply chains created an alarming chip shortage in the U.S. Alarming because these chips are found in everything, from smartphones and gaming consoles to cars and weapons. Some estimates project the semiconductor industry will be worth more than a trillion dollars in less than 10 years. Earlier this year, the Biden administration passed the CHIPS Act. Among other things, the legislation earmarks at least $52 billion in subsidies to build up our semiconductor industry. It also sets aside roughly $100 billion in research spending over the next five years. These tiny chips are expected to make a huge economic impact, one with geopolitical implications. But will America's investment be worth it? After the break, we talk about that question and more. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, SmartWool. Our greatest adventures can't be gift-wrapped, but the SmartWool gear that makes them possible can. From award-winning merino wool base layers to must-have accessories and socks, the magic of merino will keep your loved ones warm and cozy all season long. Whether you're shopping for the all-day explorer or the late-night bonfire starter, find the perfect merino gift for every adventurer on your list. Enjoy 15% off your first purchase when you sign up for Smart Wool's mailing list. Let's get right into the conversation. Here to talk about semiconductors with us is Paul Triolo. He's Senior Vice President for China and Technology Policy at the Albright Stonebridge Group. That's a global strategic advisory firm. Paul, welcome. Thank you. I'm quite glad to be here. Also with us is Jay Goldberg. He's an author at Digits to Dollars blog. He's also a partner at Snow Globe Capital. That's a tech venture capital firm. Jay, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And we should note that both Paul and Jay have clients in the semiconductor industry. Now, later in the program, we'll hear from the White House chips coordinator in charge of disseminating the funds. But first, let's let's start small. I'm talking microchips small. Paul, what are these chips and why are they so important? (laughs) <laughs> well, these chips are important because we're interacting with these with these chips, whether we know it or not. Almost, um, you know, th- during the entire day, from the time we wake up, uh, we jump on our smartphone, and we're watching our smart TV. We're jumping into our car, um, which is chock full of semiconductors. So, really, we're sort of awash in a world of semiconductors, which are providing all of these great things we like to do, like um, uh, access social media on our smartphone, watch videos. Um, move through uh, time and space seamlessly in our in our in our self-driving automobiles. So semiconductors are really at the core of the sort of modern the digital uh, information economy. They're they're also uh, sitting in places you don't you don't necessarily see, like data centers where they're processing and crunching all this data and storing it, um, and then and then shipping it out to to, to the, the people who are um, at the end of the end of the food chain. There, so we're really in a world that's powered, the modern global economy that is really powered by semiconductors at many levels. Now, Jay, semiconductor chips aren't all the same. Can you help us understand sort of the range of these chips and how they're used? Sure. So uh, I think first it's important to understand there's really two sides to the semiconductor industry that we're going to talk about. Much like when you build a house, you have an architect who designs it, and then you have construction workers who actually put it all together. In, in chips, we have the same sort of split where you have companies that design chips, companies like Qualcomm and NVIDIA and, and AMD. 
the, they design the chips, and then they're usually manufactured by other companies like TSMC and uh, UMC. And Intel is the sort of one exception that does both. And now TM- TSMC is one of the, the big players in this market, and they're located in Taiwan, correct? That's right. Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. Paul, explain a bit more about the CHIPS Act. What does it do? First of all, it it gets the U.S. into the game of incentivizing um, uh, advanced manufacturing. Uh, most developed countries provide uh, similar types of incentives that are in the CHIPS Act, things like tax credits um, and outright grants. Um, and countries like Germany and Israel and Japan and Taiwan um, and China, of course, um, the government provides uh, huge subsidies in, in those countries to, for, for um, advanced uh, manufacturing. So the CHIPS Act is sort of a, a, at one level a, 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 a sign that the U.S. wants to play this game, sort of levels the playing field here. Um, that's one part of it. And, and the, 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 I think the money involved here, something like you mentioned, $54 billion, there's about $39 billion in that, uh, in that overall um, uh, initial amount for the CHIPS Act that's for advanced manufacturing. And that will be the most advanced nodes of the type that, are, that TSMC uh, tends to dominate. And then also some of the legacy nodes, things that are used in your automobiles or medical devices. Um, and so it's, 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 a, it's sort of a down payment. I would view it as a down payment because these are really long-term types of investments um, in these kinds of really complicated manufacturing uh, operations. And so the goal really is to sort of um, form public-private partnerships, so to sort of incentivize these these big private sector companies to do more investment in the U.S. And I think we're already seeing that, of course, with TSMC building a, a fab in uh, Arizona. President Biden will be visiting um, that fab tomorrow, um, along with Commerce Secretary Raimondo. And it's it really represents sort of a watershed in, in terms of U.S., um, industrial policy. You could argue this is really the U.S. saying, hey, we really need um, an industrial policy to help uh, over the long term to incentivize this industry and bring bring some of that manufacturing back here. Now, the second p- piece of it, just briefly, is that this, this concentration of uh, advanced manufacturing, particularly the really high-end chips that are that are in your smartphone and um, in in data centers, these are overwhelmingly manufactured here in Taiwan, where I'm sitting right now. Just 30, 33 miles from me is, is you know our 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 dozen uh, TSMC fabs that are cranking out these chips. Now it also happens to be a sensitive geopolitical region, of course, with uh, with China um, and all the issues in U.S. China and Taiwan relations. And so part of the game here is to help reduce that geographic, heavy geographic dependency on Taiwan for these advanced semiconductors. Everybody believes that this is not a good idea because of the of the of this tensions uh, and and potential fragility of the whole region. Yeah, we're, we're going to um, talk so about TSMC a little a little later in the hour. But I want to get to a voicemail we got from Mark in Virginia. We asked our audience what questions they had about semiconductor chips and about the Chips Act. I really don't understand our China policy at all. I'm a pet owner. You can't buy a dog toy that's not made in China. The chip thing is just a a grand um, awakening that we are losing the battle here. It just seems like a little too late in a policy that is just unexplainable. It's it's as if we're we're, uh, trading our country for trinkets. Jay, why has the U.S. lagged behind in this sector? I think it goes back to, uh, you know, 20, 30 years of U.S. policy and trade towards China, where we've been willing to make that exact uh, trade-off the caller spoke about, where we've 
sort of shifted all manufacturing to China. Now, I think it's important to note that that semis are different, right? Because semis, we're really talking about Taiwan. China's China's chip manufacturing capacity is still fairly uh, modest or immature. It's not as developed. Uh, but we have this big dependency on Taiwan for semiconductor manufacturing. And we just, uh, American companies have uh, have not kept up. Intel in particular is, was once a leader in chip manufacture and has uh, sort of fallen by the wayside in recent years. And and uh, th- there's some of those reasons are very specific to Intel, and some of them are more around some of the geopolitical trade-offs we've made, right? Uh, Taiwan has a, a pretty favored currency that's given them a big cost advantage and a compounding tra- training advantage. It's just something we haven't focused on for a long time. And and for you know for years it it made sense and now we're starting to realize that there is a there's a price to be paid for that. Paul, we mentioned semiconductor chips are found in military weapons. Are there national security implications that come with these chips being produced outside of the U.S.? Well, that, that's a really good question. I think um, the the real national security questions are this this sort of at this point are the really heavy dependence on Taiwan, right? And the potential risk that that Taiwan could um, be involved in a military conflict with China, which would have huge implications for the global supplies of those advanced semiconductors. So that's the real national security issue. Semiconductors, um, you know, are, are manufactured in many places around the world and t- traditionally haven't been really the, the focus of heavy national security concern in terms of where they're manufactured. It's a global supply chain um, and these and and the designs are 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 and the tools that are being used are are, are standardized, um, and so from a sort of manufacturing location point of view, this traditionally hasn't been as much of a concern. The real national security concern now is the geographic concentration, and then of course the end uses of those semiconductors. So as we saw with the recent export controls that the U.S. imposed on certain advanced chips from China, for example, that are used in AI and high-performance computing, you know, there's there's definitely legitimate concern over how the, the, the chips that are being uh, sent to China, for example, how they're used uh, in, in end-use applications, which could include, you know, for example, computers that are used to model advanced weapon systems. That was the rationale behind the recent export controls. So, yes, there are definitely national security concerns around semiconductors, but those really focus, I think, on the end-use and on sort of the currently the geographic concentration um, of advanced uh, manufacturing in Taiwan. We also got this tweet from John who has a question about how this all works. John says, so why are we investing in this when most of those items are made across seas? I think he's referring to phones, things like that. So we're going to make the chips and then ship the chips across seas and then make the products and then bring them back? It makes no sense. Uh, Paul, or Jay rather, I wanted to come to you on this does John have it right here? How does this fit more broadly into manufacturing? Yes, I think he's he's right. Uh, we we design the chips here, and as Paul mentioned, that's a lot of value and it's a very important industry. But the physical manufacture of the chips tends to take place in Taiwan and Korea, and then the assembly and manufacture of the finished product, the phone or computer, largely takes place in China. And this goes to what I was saying before, which is we we, we really don't have that manufacturing capability anymore in the U.S. Um, trying to manufacture electronic goods here is is much more challenging than trying to get something built in Shenzhen in southern China. And, and why is it more challenging? Uh, we, we just haven't done it for a long time. Uh, you know, in the 80s, we, we thought we would offshore low-cost manufacturing to China. 
And China has its own interest and has done a very good job over the last 30 years of in, in, uh, sort of moving up the value stack and being able to produce not just low sort of labor intensive, low value goods, but now they're manufacturing very high value, complicated, skilled labor types of, of things as well. Uh, Taiwan makes about 65% of the world's semiconductor chips for phones, cars, and fighter jets. And Paul, as you mentioned, you're in Taiwan right now. How is the CHIPS Act affecting Taiwanese businesses and workers? Well, uh, Taiwan Taiwan and TSMC will be one of the big beneficiaries of the CHIPS Act, of course. So TSMC is now building that fab in Arizona. They're going to receive a, you know, a good chunk of those initial round of subsidies from the U.S. government. And then also, I think it's important to mention supply chains here. So one of the reasons, just to go back to your initial question there, your previous question, is that the reason China is at the center of the of the manufacturing for, of, of the devices that are using semiconductors is because all the supply chains have been optimized in Asia uh, around China for the last 30 years. Um, and so that's a huge part of it. And in Taiwan, the, the supply chains have been heavily optimized around the manufacturing. So uh, when you say optimized, what do you mean exactly? That means that all the suppliers are within a, a short geographic distance. The logistics are, are all optimized to easily move around products back and forth for various stages of processing, and and all the all the the the, in, the goods that feed into the the manufacturing, for example, the gases and materials, they're all available locally from suppliers, and so it's easy to drive down costs and optimize the sort of um, the the manufacturing, uh, and so that that's one of the reasons, that, for example, for TSMC success, they have a thousand suppliers locally in Taiwan. So part of the challenge of the Chips Act is going to be bringing some of those suppliers to the U.S. So Taiwan companies will benefit also from, from the CHIPS Act money uh, that are not just the big players like TSMC, but the supply chains. Jay, how will the CHIPS Act affect the semiconductor chip industry in China? I, I think we don't know exactly yet. But in, in general, the CHIPS Act and these latest rounds of, of sanctions on uh, exports to China will have a big impact on really curbing China's ability to manufacture leading edge chips. We, we talk about a lot about leading edge versus trailing edge the, the the sort of highest performance things that we use, computers, data center servers, phones, we really need the most advanced manufacturing process to do those competitively. And that's where Taiwan TSMC has a real big advantage. China has been trying to move up and sort of close the gap with its manufacturing capabilities. Uh, and and the latest sanctions have uh, are, are likely to make that very, very hard, at least for next, the next decade. Um, they're just not going to be able to catch up. And and I think the, the thinking is the, the sanctions plus the CHIPS Act, the intent is to limit China's ability to move advanced manufacturing up that scale and increase the U.S.'s ability to do that. And with, uh, with TSMC building its plant here, uh, hopefully Intel catching up, uh, there's a chance that we may be able to bring some of that advanced advanced manufacturing back to the U.S., while we mentioned TSMC building a plant in Arizona, and again, President Biden plans on being in Arizona tomorrow to celebrate the progress there. Last week, Biden went to Michigan to tour a semiconductor manufacturer that's a local subsidiary of a South Korean company. Today, we're down to producing only 10% of the world's chips, despite leading the world in research and design of new chip technology. Why does this matter? I had a long meeting with Xi Jinping at the G20, we have met for over 80 hours over the last 10 years. We know each other well. And he's a little upset that we're deciding we're going to once again be 
you know, and so are European friends. They're talking about the supply chain. We're going to be the supply chain. The difference is going to be we're going to make that supply chain available to the rest of the world, but we're not going to be held hostage anymore. Jay, what do you make of Biden's claim that the U.S. is going to be the supply chain, especially considering most U.S. semiconductor infrastructure, especially on the manufacturing side, is still being built with international help? I I think... uh this is, you know, it, it took us many decades to get into this position, and it's going to take us uh, a similar amount of time to get out of that position. I see the CHIPS Act and uh, the latest moves as a step in the right direction, but it's really just the first step or two moving down that path. Um, there are clear geopolitical risks involved with our supply chain, and we've all become very aware of them in the past few years, and I think it's important that we address them from a national security standpoint. Uh, and the economic side we can we can debate, but I think it's it, it, there is this real risk here, and we have to take steps to secure our supply chains. And from your perspective, what are the the major national security risks we need to be aware of and we need to address? I mean, to to be blunt, a, a large amount of our technological capability is is dependent on TSMC plants that are within easy rocket and artillery range of of China, and you know, hopefully, it never comes to a shooting war. But in the event that it does, the that's a becomes a major major bottleneck for for our for our economy and for our our, our you know our national security. I want to get to this question we got from Peter who emails. Would you please address the difficulty TSMC has had hiring for their Arizona facilities? Paul, is this something you can speak to? It sure is. I was actually talking about it earlier today. Yeah. So you know these these facilities require uh, you know a large numbers of of skilled personnel. Even though they're they're largely automated when they're up and running, they take a lot of engineers to keep them running and to design the next uh, the next uh, iteration of these facilities. So th- these this is a a, a a capability that Taiwan has developed over the last thirty years, and their education system. Um, cranks out large numbers of hardware engineers. TSMC, for example, in 2030 is estimated will take 85% of all STEM graduates um, from Taiwan universities. So the U.S., of course, has not produced similar numbers of STEM graduates. And so companies like TSMC and Samsung and even Intel that are now wanting to manufacture in the U.S., they need uh, to hire you know, qualified engineers, um, and the U.S. system is, is, is not producing sufficient numbers. So part of all the applications for the Chipsack money, for example, have to include a workforce development uh, pr- proposal. This is something that Commerce Secretary Raimondo has been very, very strong on. Because if you're going to man these plants, you know you have to have a plan over the over the next two to three to four to five years to staff them, um, and that requires really serious workforce development, which again is something the U.S. hasn't really done in this arena before uh, uh, the, the Chips Act was passed. So, with that context, Paul, what do you think the likelihood is that the U.S. will become a competitive player in this space? Well, I think it's it's complicated. I mean, there'll be a, they'll, the, Taiwan, for example, is training TSMC is training some engineers for its facilities. Most of the most of the key players are teaming up with local universities. For example, TSMC is working very closely with Arizona State University, which has a really good engineering program. Um, uh, uh, Intel is, of course, they're building a plant in Ohio, and they have Ohio State there. Samsung is will be building facilities in Texas, um, where the University of Texas and other institutions are will be stepping up their their hardware and STEM uh, education programs to try to meet the needs of these facilities. But it's going to be a process. You know, you, once you start stoking those pipelines, it's going to take a while to start cranking out people. But the, 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 the bottom line, though, is that these facilities, once they're up and running, 
um, are really automated. I was just out at TSMC today, and you know the level of automation for modern semiconductor facilities is really stunning, um, and it's sort of required to, to be efficient and, and be competitive. Um, but I think the U.S. will respond. This, the education system in the U.S. is very good, and I think um, over time it will start producing uh, the, the required numbers. But it'll, 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 it's, a, it's a long-term process. This is really a five- to ten-year process to really rejuvenate um, U.S. system for, in terms of advanced manufacturing and getting the, the numbers of engineers that are needed for that. Let's head back to our voicemail box. Here's Deborah in Colorado. A couple of family members and I all worked in the semiconductor industry when it was going strong several years ago, had various experiences, including non-competitive wages, non-competitive benefit packages, and if any company wants to be a world-class producer of semiconductors, again, in the United States, they need to take into account that they need to attract a world-class employee base. And they can do that by paying appropriately and offering benefit packages that people need. So Paul spoke about building up the, the pipeline for engineers needed to build out this sector. But Jay Deborah is talking about competitive pay as a barrier to U.S. involvement in the industry. What other challenges do you see in that space? Well, I, I think there's this stereotype, and we, we hear this sometimes from uh, co- company and government officials in Asia that the U.S. just is, doesn't have a workforce. It doesn't have people who want to work hard. Uh, it doesn't have people who are well enough trained. And I think all of that is grossly misplaced. I think the U.S. workforce is incredibly capable. Uh, we could do better at training, but we we have an incredibly talented, motivated, hardworking uh, population that is very willing to uh, you know go through the training and the rigors of being in this uh, in this industry. Uh, and it, it's, I, I think, uh, paying them well is sort of just the the, the first step, uh, and I, I, I don't think that makes it uh, non-competitive. I think we just have to organize and plan out and and try a little bit harder at doing this. And I think that the Chips Act is, like I said, it's a good first step, getting people thinking about the right issues, uh, because there's a lot of value to be created here. Like you said, it's going to be a trillion-dollar industry. That's a lot of that's a lot of money to support uh, <coughs> high-paying jobs and skilled labor. Uh, let's go back to our voicemail box. Here's George in Texas. My question with this whole push for the semiconductors is that we're going into a mega drought. Semiconductor production requires a lot of water. Do we have enough water to sustain an initiative like that? Uh, Paul, first, what are the natural resources needed to make semiconductors and where are they found? Hmm. Well, there are lots of materials that go into semiconductors. At the sort of most basic is is silicon. Um, which is what the what the wafers that the silicon uh, that the that the semiconductors are are built on uh, is made of, and that requires a lot of refining um, to, to 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 be purified. Um, and then there are a whole host of other chemicals and gases that go into the to the manufacturing process. Now, it, it is true that the manufa- manufacturing process does use a lot of water, but companies, big companies like TSMC and Intel, the big players, are all recycling and sort of reusing the water. Um, to some degree, so there is there is a lot of water use, but over the years, companies um, have have realized that they have to um, account for you know for for things like recycling, and so the industry has moved in that direction. Um, so when people talk about Arizona being pretty arid, it's true, um, but obviously um, companies like TSMC they really know how to manage. 
um, water resources. Uh, they've done it here in Taiwan, where there's water is also a big issue, um, as is thing, are things like power. I think power is the thing that people don't think about in terms of environmental-related uh, issues. These fabs require a ton of power to operate here, and so if that uh, if that energy is coming from renewables, that's a good thing. If it's not, if it's coming from coal or other fossil fuels, of course, then these these uh, facilities have a major carbon footprint. I just want to mention you use the, the term fab several times, and you're referring there to a semiconductor fabrication plant. I do want to note Arizona's Intel plant produced nearly 15,000 tons of waste in three months. Uh, most of the waste was hazardous. It also used about 1,400 Olympic-sized pools worth of water. Uh, that's according to The Guardian. So more broadly speaking, Paul, what are the environmental impacts of this industry? And if we're thinking about building it out here in the U.S., are those concerns top of mind for the people who are trying to build it out? That's a great question. I think that those those um, those issues are definitely um, near top of mind. I think the sort of ESG uh, footprint of a company, the sort of environmental and, so, and social and governmental issues. Um, companies now have to be aware of these. They have to be concerned about the environmental impact. So yeah, I would say it, it's increasingly front, uh, you know, front of front of mind here. It's also of, of concern, of course, to local governments. Um, keep in mind, we haven't really mentioned, but the Chips Act provides this federal funding. Uh, at the national level, but the, but the real where the rubber hits the road are in, in, at the state level. So Arizona, of course, is eager to attract this kind of investment, um, and they're offering um, incentives and 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 concessions too to those companies to come come and build there. And of course, they're going to be very very concerned about uh, issues like environmental uh, the environmental impact of those facilities on the local community. So that's I think where the where the where the where the the, the, the sort of uh, concern is going to probably be greatest is going to be at the local level. Um, the, the, at the federal level, um, really the, the concern has been around more things like work, workforce development, um, of course, and attracting those firms to come to the U.S. But yes, you're absolutely right. Those, these, these facilities do have a big environmental footprint. I think the biggest one really is this, the power use and how the power is generated. We're talking semiconductors and how the U.S. plans to reshape the industry and what that means for China and Taiwan. We'll add another voice to the conversation in just a moment. Let's get back to the conversation by speaking to someone who's very familiar with the CHIPS Act. Again, that legislation earmarks $52 billion in subsidies for America's semiconductor industry. It also sets aside roughly $100 billion for semiconductor research over the next five years. Ronnie Chatterjee gets to decide how that money will be spent. He's the White House Coordinator for CHIPS Implementation. Ronnie, welcome. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So we're focusing on semiconductors today, but how much money is in the CHIPS Act as a whole? Well, you have $52.7 billion in money in the CHIPS Act to make sure the United States reasserts its edge in both the manufacturing and research and development of chips in America. And that's really the, the pot of money we're talking about right now. It's uh, really the most historic down payment we've made on American competitiveness in a generation. And, and beyond that $52 billion, what other money is in the act? Well, the Chips and Science Act that was passed includes um, tens of billions of dollars more for research and development. That money was authorized by Congress, but is yet to be appropriated. It's really important to driving R&D, and we'll keep fighting for it. So, as you said, it earmarks $100 billion for future research, $52 billion, but none of these funds have been distributed yet? The $52.7 billion is right now we're working on the plan to distribute it. We will release in February of 2023 a plan to distribute the first $39 billion. That 
those are the funds that are going to be used to invest in manufacturing facilities all across America, just like the one the, president's, the president has been visiting over 2021 and 2022. So we're talking about billions of dollars. How will you dis- distribute these funds in a way that ensures there's no waste or fraud? Well, that has been the biggest critique of programs to support um, industrial strategy over the past generation in the U.S. and abroad. One of the most important things is to avoid conflicts of interest and to make sure that the applicants have strong applications independent of any other consideration. That's one thing. The second thing is to establish clear metrics and benchmarks as we distribute the money to make sure that we are monitoring and making sure that the performance of these fabs, they're actually producing the chips that they say they're going to, that they're on schedule and on time. We want to hold the companies accountable for the money that they're receiving, and we'll make sure that we get the best return on our investment. So when you talk about holding those companies accountable for the money they're receiving, what does that accountability look like? Accountability means that what's specified in the application by these companies has to happen on the timetable that they specify and that we approve. And so we'll be monitoring those projects. I mean, these take years to make sure that they're on schedule. That's one thing. And the second thing, we got to make sure that this money isn't going to uh, stock buybacks or investments in other countries of concern. We have to make sure it's being invested right here in the United States of America. And if companies don't meet your expectations, what happens? We have the right to claw back the money and make sure that we can invest it elsewhere in more productive use. And that's why we're going to make sure that we get the most return uh, from this investment for the public in the Chips and Science Act. According to a report from the Boston Consulting Group, Taiwan is responsible for more than 90 percent of the world's most advanced semiconductors. Even with this push from the Biden administration, how confident are you that the U.S. can become a major player in this industry? I'm really confident because it's a bet on the United States of America. If you look at a generation ago, maybe the 1990s, we made 37% of these chips here in the U.S. So we can do it. We can make these in America. But over time, it dropped to around 12%. And now we need to build back that total. And we need to make the most advanced chips here in the United States. And that's one of the reasons the president is going to Phoenix, Arizona tomorrow to announce um, the big building of TSMC, the idea that they're going to invest in America. And I think that's a great opportunity to show that the Taiwanese semiconductor manufacturing company is investing right there in America, as is Intel, Micron, IBM, and so many other companies. And when we talk about the U.S. being a major player in this industry, how, how do you measure success? What does that look like? We have to be making, again, uh, the amount of chips we need to produce the goods we have here in the United States and supply the global market competitively with exports as well. So when it comes to a number, we can't specify that ahead of time, but we need to be making more of the chips than we are now. We only make a small percentage of chips, and we make almost none of the most advanced chips. We need to increase those totals so we can make cars and washing machines and all the different products that chips go into here in the United States of America. And that's a big part of the Biden economic strategy. So for the average American who's considering perhaps their next phone purchase or their next television purchase, and they're wondering what this all means for them, what would you tell them to expect from the Biden administration over the next, say, or I should say from the CHIPS Act for the next, say, five or 10 years? We are going to make more of these chips in the United States of America. So the cost of those everyday goods is going to come down. And you're going to be more likely to get those products on time. We're not going back to the days of the pandemic when we couldn't get these goods and prices were rising. The CHIPS Act will help us make this a reality, lower costs for American families. That's Ronnie Chatterjee. He's the White House Coordinator for CHIPS Implementation. Ronnie, thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Jen. Really appreciate it. Uh, Jay and Paul, you were listening along uh, to that conversation with Ronnie. Jay, any big takeaways there? I, I think they're saying the right things. There's obviously a lot of details we still need to follow through on. And, uh, uh, but it's encouraging that the, the, the basic idea is, seems sound to me. 
where we're talking about the CHIPS Act being a, a first step in building the ecosystem and then seeking to get the private sector involved. And I think this is a good way to spark that innovation and the economic growth they're looking for. Paul, what about for you? Yeah, I think the the cost issue is interesting because you know it, it is actually more expensive for companies like TSMC to operate in the U.S. They're paying more for engineers, they're paying more for their supply chains. So it's not clear to me that the cost ultimately how that will be passed on to the to the American consumer because these facilities are going to be expensive at least initially to run. An engineer, for example, in Taiwan might say they're making seventy thousand a year uh, being paid in the U.S. That's that's going to be double um, that 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 salary. Typically, and and those engineers also, of course, have have the uh, the chance to be wooed away by the likes of Google and Apple and, and, and on the software side. So um, it's going to be tricky to keep the cost down for these facilities um, because uh, the costs of everything in the U.S. is more expensive. The the the, the TSMC chair, former chairman Maurice Chang and, and other TSMC officials, even as they're building an official uh, or building the, the facilities in the U.S., they're they're they, they're calling into question both the U.S. long term commitment to manufacturing and also the the, the sort of cost effectiveness of this of sort of, re- of recreating pieces of this critical so, uh, manufacturing supply chain in the US their argument of course is that in Taiwan they can do it better and and, and more more efficiently because they they know how to do it and they've been doing it for a long time so the really interesting piece of this will be to see how uh, over time uh, you know the, the these facilities are operating and how commercial uh, and what commercial levels they're operating as the economy recovers. And, you know, we're going to get some more beneficial uh, aspects as we come out of the pandemic and people start buying consumer goods again. Um, but, but but I'm not convinced about the, how the costs are going to be controlled here, both for sort of the, the, the material inputs and the personnel inputs. Let's get to one more voicemail. This is Keith in Nevada. This is a result of people wanting things less expensive, and this was the least expensive way to do it to offshore everything. Now people realize that you might have to spend a little more to guarantee the product that you need. And I think it's going to happen in a lot of industries as well. Jay, what do you think? Could this be the start of a trend where we see more industries move back to the U.S.? I, I, short answer is no. I think we, a lot of manufacturing is going to remain overseas. I th- but I think what we can do here is to focus on the future and focus on developing the newest industries. I think there are national security reasons why we want to have some capacity here, but I think we're all better off if we spend our effort and our energy focused on things that are new. I mean, America has done an incredible job of creating and fostering innovation. That's re- that's our that's one of our greatest skills. And we, we need to keep looking towards the future. We need to look at not just advanced chip manufacturing, but what comes next? Advanced materials, quantum computing, bioinformatics. There's all kinds of other promising areas uh, that we can s- support and really focus on. And I think that's that's the best uh, payoff for our investments. And just a couple of sentences. I'd love to hear from each of you what you're watching for next, because there's a lot going on here. Jay? I, I'm watching very carefully on what TSMC is actually going to build in, in Arizona. Uh, I think their initial plans, they were going to build a fairly small facility, but uh, I'm increasingly convinced that they're going to really build an advanced, highly capable plant here to supply U.S. customers. And I think that's going to be a, a much bigger impact than uh, originally we thought. Paul, in just a sentence or two, your thoughts? Sure. I'm hoping that we can avoid conflict over Taiwan so that TSMC can continue to thrive as, a, as an amazing company and can build those facilities in Arizona 
um, and and we can get to a diversified, global, you know, geographically dispersed supply chain that will benefit everybody. That's Paul Triolo. He's a senior vice president for China and tech policy at the Albright Stonebridge Group. Also with us, Jay Goldberg, an author at the Digits to Dollars blog. He's also a partner at Snowcloud Capital. Paul, Jay, thanks for your time. Remember, we have a text club. It's the fastest way to connect with us. Find out how to sign up under the Talk to 1A tab at the1a.org. Today's show was produced by Michelle Harvin and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.